Good morning to each of you. It's good to see you here in the house of the Lord and trust that you've been blessed being here already. I have. And it was, it's been interesting. Uh, I struggle a bit to know what to preach on this morning. And um, in some ways, uh, I can say that it has been affirmed in a sense, not maybe not directly, but when and my thoughts are going along this way, Robert's devotion this morning on the faithfulness of God, and then also some of the comments on sanctification and so forth in an ongoing way, I uh, trust that this is uh, what the Lord uh, would have for us this morning. And I am speaking to myself first of all as well. <clears throat> Over the years, I've toyed with the idea of whether there is one common thread or one common starting point, if you will, to all sin. Um, like, you know, is it rooted in this one thing is kind of the root of all sin? And uh, I don't know that I have uh, identified that. There's two words that I have kind of latched on to at different times in the past. The one is selfishness, in that when we sin, we're doing so because we convince ourselves that we're going to benefit from it in some way. And, and, and that's, that's a spirit of selfishness. The other one is pride. We think we know best and we act accordingly. Um, it's centered on myself. Now, I don't think that either one of those are necessarily inaccurate, but I don't know that it's, they're necessarily... Um, they necessarily fully capture what I'm after either. <clears throat> this morning, I'd like for us to consider another possibility, and um, this is really kind of a new thought to me, and I trust that as we go through this together that uh, you can at least hear me out, and I welcome your feedback on it. I've been reading through the Old Testament in four different, well, through the Bible in four different sections, the reading plan that I'm using, one started in Genesis, the other started in Chronicles, one in Psalms, and then one in the New Testament. It's so been reading through Chronicles and Kings. I have been intrigued with the, both the frequency as well as the various descriptions of the kings that, came, that ruled Judah in particular, but in the history of Israel, and how they embraced or tolerated varying degrees of idolatry. Um, and the lure of idolatry seems to be on nearly every page through those books of the history of the Old Testament. And it made me contemplate, what is it about idolatry that is so tempting and so prevalent throughout the pages of Scripture, and especially the Old Testament, for me, it's easy to gloss over those passages or uh, those references, whether it's about images or golden calves or Baal or Ashtaroth or in the New Testament, the goddess of Diana. And, you know, and we think how foolish that people would actually worship such things. That's at least how I think. But I want us to consider together this morning whether idolatry might actually lie at the heart of what sin is and why that is so prominent throughout the Old Testament. And so I've entitled this morning's message, The Lure of Idolatry. 
First of all, I want to just start with the idea that God is God. And we are not. I mean, that's an obvious statement, but at the same time, God is the only true God. God, as in the triune Godhead, is the creator of the entire universe. And while I don't believe the universe is infinite in size, man has not yet discovered the edge of the universe. Um, we read in Isaiah that the stars all have names, and so that's why I don't think that it's infinite, but it is massive. And God created everything out of nothing. And just to think about who God is, is it, it, it truly is mind-boggling. Colossians 1, we have a description of Jesus, who is a member of the Godhead, and just like to read this as we think about that God is God and who he is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, heaven and on, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that through and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. When you look at this passage and see all the words, all and everything and fullness, it really is, it blows our comprehension. We really can't even grasp it all, but he sustains all things. He holds creation together. He's preeminent. He's far superior to, there's no close second to God. He is self-existent. He doesn't need anything else to even exist because he's the source of life itself. He is good. He's supremely good. And there is no goodness that exists apart from him. He's faithful. He's sovereign. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. There's nothing that's hidden from him. He's all-powerful. He's the only true God. And he wants mankind to remember that reality. And yet, how quickly, how easily do we forget? The first of the Ten Commandments is very clear and very concise. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, as I was reading that and thinking about it, so does this imply that God is not the only deity? No other gods? Uh, no, but rather God is stating that the only true God is not to be displaced by some substitute, something else, or marginalized by anything else. God deserves our full prior, a, a full priority. So God is God. It's a given that man is not. God created man in his image. He gave us the freedom to choose to turn our backs on God. Being made in the image of God 
we will never find true fulfillment apart from serving and worshiping this infinite God who created us. But man is finite. And we have a limited capacity to know reality, to understand. We're restricted by time and space. We can't grasp who God really is or, yeah, the fullness of who God is because man is not God. And while man is a marvelous creation, man remains a created being. And that's very different than the creator. Adam and Eve lived in a perfect environment. God walked with them. God communed with them. There was open fellowship between man and God. Yet, in spite of this perfect relationship with God, they weren't quite satisfied, apparently. They thought they were missing out on something. They wanted something more. In Genesis 3, 4, and 5, the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, obeying Satan rather than God, they committed the first act of idolatry. They chose to put more value on the words of Satan than they did on the words of God. They chose to believe there was something superior to Creator God's original plan. They thought Almighty God was withholding something from them, withholding the best from them, and decided to trust the serpent's word over God's. And since the fall of Adam and Eve, man has just repeatedly attempted to usurp God from his rightful place. Um, you see this again and again throughout the Old Testament, and that's what my mind was drawn to. And, you know, we think of the golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai, and it's like, how could they so quickly do something so rash, so irrational in so many ways? And while there's a lot of examples throughout the Old Testament, I'm going to focus on just a number of the kings of Judah this morning as we think about how they acted, some of the things that they made. First of all, we're going to start uh, with Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived. And he was the last king over the 12 tribes of Israel. He started out faithful to God, but he ended his reign in idolatry. And I'm going to be reading from uh, 1 Kings 11. You can turn there, and you might want to make note of some of these phrases um, that I'm highlighting here and what, what Solomon did. I'm going to have it up here on the screen as well. But <clears throat> says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. And uh, I'm not going to, well, yeah, I'll go ahead and read this. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, and Hittite women, 
from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall, you, shall they, they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after other gods. And Solomon clung to these women in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. And when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and after Milcon, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemash, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. So he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after the other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all of the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So Solomon made some very bad decisions later on in life, and, uh, and he's punished for it. But just notice the frequency of, of how that it turned his heart away from God, and he ended up then, then creating these... Um, these altars and, uh, and, and so forth for these various gods. <clears throat> I want to now quickly just go through a number of, of other kings of Judah that followed. So the tribe of Judah is the succession. All of the kings of Israel were evil, the other 11 tribes. But the, the lineage of Solomon, there were some that were better than others, and, uh, and, and so we're going to just look at some of the uh, kings of Judah and how they responded and the different descriptions that are given. So we're going to start with King Asa, and uh, this is taken from, uh, you'll see the references, Second Chronicles and Second Kings mostly is where these come from. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram. Even Makah, his mother, King Asa, removed from being queen mother because she made a detestable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were, were not taken out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. So just notice here, um, this is several generations after Solomon, but so here was a man that was doing right, and he got rid of a number of these idols and, and took action against them. Um, but the high places, as you'll notice, are kind of hard to get rid of. And then Jehoshaphat, 
walked in the way of Asa his father and did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. The high places, however, were not taken away. The people had not yet set their hearts upon God of their fathers. Continuing on, King Jehoram walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, that was the other 11 tribes, as the house of Ahab done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah go astray. So there we have a contrast now. Uh, he actually made the high places and worshipped there. King Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada the priest instructed him, nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. And the people continued to sacrifice and make offerings in the high places. King Amaziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did all things as Joash his father had done, but the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made, uh, made offerings to the high places. Then King Azariah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah. So here we have the prophet Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. But notice here, as long as he sought the Lord... We continue, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And then in 2 Kings 15, we see that he was, give, he was made a leper because of this sin of going into the temple and offering incense. King Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. King Ahaz was 20 years old when he began, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He made, even made metal images for the Baals. He made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out from before the people of Israel. He sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and the hills and under every green tree, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped him, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of all of him and all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And um, in every city of Judah, he made the high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord and the God of his fathers. One thing I find interesting is that the good kings, or the ones that were better, 
failed to remove the high places, but when the kings were evil, it says that they added high places or they built high places. And uh, it's just fascinating to me. Then King Hezekiah, a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He removed the high places, broke the pillars, cut down the asher, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that none of them, none like him among the kings of Judah after him, nor among those that were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. And um, then King Manasseh, several more kings here before we go. Here we have that he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down and erected altars to the Baals and made Ashtaroth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served him, built altars in the house of the Lord. Um, and so he just really took it the other direction. But then when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built. So he built the altars, and then later he confessed and removed them. And then King Ammon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in the way. His father walked and served the idols. His father served and worshipped them, and he abandoned the Lord. And then we end with King Josiah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, walked in the ways of David his father. He did not turn aside from the right hand or to the left. For, when, for in, his, in the eighth year of his reign, when he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem out of the, of the high places of Ash, the ashram and the carved and metal images. And he chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. He cut down the incense altars that stood above them. He broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and metal images and made dust of them and scattered them in the groves of those who had sacrificed them. So throughout the narrative of this, the Old Testament, again and again, God's chosen people look to and put their trust in something more tangible, more palatable than Almighty God. And we wonder how they could do that. Why were they not seeing the bigger picture? How could they forget or dismiss the miracles, the blessings, and the evidence of the care and provision for them, God's faithfulness to them throughout history? Then Jesus comes on the scene, some 400 years after the close of the Old Testament. For many centuries, the Jews have awaited this promised Messiah, and he came. And Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. So we had looked at God is God, man is not God. Now we have Jesus coming. And the Hebrew writer emphasizes that Jesus was tempted in every way um, like as we are, yet without sin, in Hebrews 4.15. And he, we were never going to face a scenario that Jesus did not face. And we have confidence in that. He knows what it's like. At the onset of Jesus' ministry, when he was 30 years old, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. The Synoptic Gospels record Jesus going to the wilderness for 40 days of fasting directly following his baptism. 
We have that recorded in Matthew 4 as well as in Luke 4. And there's three specific temptations recorded. And I'd like to just look at those a little bit. I'm going to be looking at Luke 4 here momentarily. <clears throat> but several observations. After 40 days of not eating anything, we can know with a high level of certainty that Jesus was extremely weak and he was very hungry. The other thing is, since Jesus was fully human, I believe he faced far more than these three recorded temptations while he was in the wilderness. He spent 40 days there alone. I don't believe that Satan waited until the end of the 40 days to tempt Jesus. We simply have recorded three temptations. And while the narrative in the Gospels suggests that Satan approached Jesus in a physical manner, talking to him, taking him to Jerusalem and such, I'm confident that Jesus was also tempted in far less obvious forms, meaning in his thoughts, in his attitudes, the way that he thought about life. It wasn't, you know, it's one thing to have a conversation with a person, if that's the form that Satan came. But it's a whole different thing when you're wrestling with something in your mind by yourself. <clears throat> so I just wanted to keep those things in mind as we look at Luke chapter 4. And I want to read the first 13 verses here. And this is kind of the foundation of what I want to uh, bring out this morning then. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all, all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of a temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on, his hands, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered to him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So scripture tells us here that Jesus was tempted, in, not here, but in Hebrews, that we're, we're tempted Jesus was tempted in every way as we are without sinning. And I think these three temptations in many ways encapsulate the types of uh, temptations that we face today, 2,000 years later. And I think that they also reveal the underlying lure of idolatry. So the first temptation, turning stones to bread, 
This temptation has to do with physical possessions. The things that we have or don't have. Jesus was hungry. And therefore, that was the point of the temptation for him. He, he wanted bread. He was, he was hungry. He was starving. But he responded to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, Jesus was entirely capable of making bread out of stones. In fact, he could have made a steak dinner out of stones. It wasn't that he was limited in any way there. But Jesus' response to Satan is reminding him that life is more than about uh, the ability to just simply meet physical needs. And when we start placing our trust and our confidence in the physical possessions, the material possessions that we have, I believe that we're beginning to practice a form of idolatry. We've shifted our complete trust in God to those things that I have. And I think it's possible to become idolatrous even if we don't have the physical possessions. When we believe that if only I had this one thing, then we would be satisfied or content or that would bring fulfillment. Again, it's at the point that our trust or our reliance is in something material or physical rather than God uh, which is where our desire, where our soul focus should be. So this first temptation is about putting our trust and confidence in what I have or don't have instead of God. The second temptation, he was promised all the kingdoms of the world. It's about gaining power or control. Satan is offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus bowed down to him. And, I mean, clearly that's a form of idolatry because it involves worship even. So why is this a temptation to Jesus? Because Jesus is the king of kings, and the kingdoms will be his, it's just not yet. In a lot of ways, this was a shortcut. Satan promised a cheap version of what was to come, but the possibility of not having to wait, not going through those three years of ministry, not going through being tortured and crucified. And so this was an easier way, and I'm sure it was appealing. But Jesus reprimanded Satan by reminding him that God alone is to be worshipped. And when we rely on our own abilities and our own skills to accomplish our own goals and ambitions, that too can become a form of idolatry when we're doing it in our own strength, in our own uh, and leaving God out of it. God has given us, his skill, given us skills and abilities for us to use for his honor and for his glory in his time, not just simply to advance our own ambitions and our own desires. And we have the ability to minimize our reliance on God while we're maximizing our own abilities to our own benefit. And so this temptation is to emphasize what I can do to accomplish what I want rather than God wants us to focus on what he's doing and wants us to join him in that work and allow him to work in and through us. The third temptation 
is to make a pretty spectacular scene, a public scene. Um, and it really is about prestige or popularity. Satan invites Jesus to jump from a prominent place in the city and allow his angels to catch him or, or prevent him from being injured. Now, um, just thinking about this, it, wouldn't it be pretty impressive, you know, putting it in our language that we think about, jumping from the top of the Mo Washington Monument and not hurting ourselves. You know, that could draw quite an attention. Jesus was getting ready to begin his earthly ministry, and that would have been an easy way to gain some notoriety and some immediate attention and probably attract a sizable following. So would there have been anything wrong with this if it, this would have been Jesus' idea instead of Satan's idea? I would say that it wasn't wrong because it's Satan's idea. It's wrong because it is about drawing undue attention to oneself. We live in a culture that's crazed about attracting attention to oneself, creating an image of prestige, of popularity, of success. And then this reality is fueled by almost an insatiable thirst for just more and more recognition, finding new ways of promoting myself. And I would like to challenge us this morning that when our identity is so closely linked to who I am or who others think I am, rather than Jesus Christ in us, I fear that we've moved into the realm of idolatry, elevating ourselves above God. Jesus, being fully human while also fully God, faced these three temptations. It's dealing with physical possessions, what I have, power, what I can do, prestige, popularity, who I am. And if you think in general terms, in a broad sense, these three temptations cover many of the temptations that we face today. And these reveal an underlying lure of idolatry that I think we all have to reckon with. In conclusion... God is infinite. Man is finite. We have a difficult time understanding, to, understanding and relating to an infinite and invisible being. It's, it's just hard for us to do. Therefore, our tendency, man's tendency, is to create a substitute, something that's a little bit more tangible, a little bit more comprehensible, and something that just makes more sense to us, and we're lured to shift our focus and trust to that substitute. God calls those substitutes idols. Jesus was tempted just like we are, and this lure of idolatry was something that he experienced, and we see how he responded to that in, when he was tempted there in the wilderness. And as I consider the possibility of idolatry in my own life, I think back to the descriptions of the kings of Judah. Several things. If someone were summarizing my life in a sentence or two, the way that we read in Chronicles and Kings, 
how would they summarize my life? What would they say? The other thing that really I keep coming back to, are there high places in my life that I am leaving undisturbed and I'm refusing to remove for whatever reason? Is, would I be described as having a heart holy, true to the Lord God? Uh, King James, I believe, uses, says perfect toward God. Or is it something less than that? Or do we have the heart of David, which was already alluded to this morning, or mentioned this morning, that's described elsewhere as a man after God's own heart? That's what God wants from each one of us. He wants us to be willing to address those high places, to get rid of those high places. He wants, to have, wants us to have a heart that is perfect toward him. He wants us to be a believer after God's own heart. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus came, was fully God and fully man, and was tempted in everything that we face today. And yet, he did so without sin. And Lord, I just pray that as we go about our lives, as we allow you to sanctify our lives, that we would be open to your spirits leading and showing us what high places we may have in our lives that we have been unwilling to address, that we have been unwilling to remove for whatever reason. And I just pray that we could have hearts that are fully committed to you, that are wholly uh, true to you. Ask that as uh, we go about our day-to-day -day activities, our work, that you would just remind us of those areas of when we are tempted to or when we uh, put undue trust in what I have or what I can do or who I am as opposed to who you are and what you are doing in and through us. So you would dismiss us with your blessing, guide and direct us in Jesus' name. Amen.